Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today I'm speaking with Ricardo Lopez Pedreros about the book, The Middle Classes in Latin America, Subjectivities, Practices, and Genealogies. Professor Lopez Pedreros is one of three editors of this volume, along with Mario Barbosa Cruz and Claudia Stern. Professor Lopez Pedreros is professor of history at Western Washington University. Ricardo, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So, Ricardo, there are crucial ideas in this book, um, both about how Latin America's middle classes have shaped the region's history, and also about sort of how we study them, about how scholars can study these groups when it seems like there are really quite a few intellectual and political obstacles uh, to doing so. It's kind of a thorny topic, and your book makes a really powerful case for rethinking it. But some listeners might actually be thinking about this topic for the first time. So it's more of a thinking than a rethinking. An outsider's representations of Latin America and its people, past and present, I found tend to really emphasize most often poverty and then second most often fantastic wealth. So I'm wondering if you could start by giving us some preliminary descriptions or examples just so that we can begin to build a more multi-layered image of social class in the region. All right, absolutely. Yes, um, thank you again. That's indeed you know, a, um, a difficult question because one of the things that we try to do with, you know, with the book is, of course, you know, to locate the formation of the middle classes in the histories, or you know, the, the yeah, the, the histories of a um, uh, of Latin America, and not necessarily Latin American histories, and that is, you know, a reason for that that we can talk about, you know, later. So what we do here is try to see then, you know, from the 19th century to the present, that particular, you know, formation. So in terms of, you know, the description, we do, you know, emphasize as a collective effort here 
we do emphasize on the one hand, you know, the 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 question of the middle class as a as a concept or even as a discourse. So that would actually, you know, be you know one aspect. And for the 19th century, in that you know regard, you know, the uh, the notion, the concept of you know uh, middle class or middle classness was central to the consolidation of liberalism and you know republicanism, right? So that's you know one part of the 19th century in terms of you know, how important in this particular, you know, case, the, the notion of uh, the, middle, uh, the middle class. But we also try to, you know, do it, let's say, in an empirical, you know, way more as a, you know, as a practice. And then we move from the 19th century to, you know, the 20th century. And we do it then, you know, through, a, um, let's say, some structural changes that, you know, Latin America as a region connected to other parts of the world you know, experience. Just to take one example, the um, expansion of, you know, the service sector since, you know, they say 1930s, 1940s. That's a common um, uh, reality for most countries in Latin America. So there are different <clears throat> contributions in the volume that shows how that expansion of the service sector, most specifically, you know, office work, shaped, you know, the formation of, you know, the concept middle class, but also the reality of certain historical actors as part of, you know, the middle classes. Then during the second the half of the 20th century, we also see then as a concept and as a practice, a, um, the consolidation of neoliberal a, um, societies broadly understood. Then, you know, that is a shift um, in which what, you know, the middle class was, you know, supposed to be that is connected more to the ideas of being entrepreneurial, you know, society. So I'm giving this brief a, um, description of the 19th to, you know, the 20th century to see the, you know, shifting meanings and practices of what, you know, being middle class, you know, mean. because one of the main efforts with these volumes to historicize those realities and not take this, you know, notion of, middle class as a transhistorical reality that is always, you know, the same, um, but rather, you know, changes over time. At first glance, it could actually, you know, be seen as, well, that's actually, you know, quite, you know, quite obvious. But what is interesting of that, what we try to, you know, see is that then when we locate the uh, formation of the middle class at the center of all of these, you know, histories, these histories look differently. And we are not just making, you know, the case that then, you know, now Latin America is a completely different, you know, region because we studied, you know, the middle classes. The effort is to connect, historiographically speaking, you know, to connect what we may call middle class studies with other historiographical fields. Because that's one of the main problems we have with, you know, middle class studies, that it actually studies the middle class in relation to the middle classes and not in relation to larger historical problematization. So that's indeed, you know, the effort that we do in the, uh, in the volume. So you mentioned that this edited volume is a collective effort, and um, I want listeners to know that uh, there are 23 chapters in addition to pieces by some um, other historians uh, to sort of bookend um, this book. And like many edited volumes, this began as a conference. So could you tell us a bit about what motivated you and the other editors to organize that conference and what surprises emerged from that conversation that happened in 2019? 
Well, that was uh, that was actually you know before the pandemic, right? So, but one of, one of the you know interesting what one of the, our effort was that a uh, um there was a tendency, still you know a, a tendency, uh, in which you know those who are interested in you know uh, uh, historicizing, you know doing research about you know the middle classes in Latin America are supposedly located outside Latin America. That the topic is of, you know, interest for those scholars who are actually, you know, outside Latin America. But that's not entirely true. I mean, it's just, you know, I would say for the last, you know, century or so, there have been some transnational discussions about, you know, the middle classes. And as, uh, and as I said in the introduction, perhaps that's one of the most discussed topics um, since World War II. So one of the efforts that you know we 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 tried to do with my two co-editors was all right. If this is a historically speaking has been a transnational experience, let's try to you know the analysis, the historical analysis of that transnational experience for us was well. It also has to you know reflect that reality. So we did organize this uh, conference in in Mexico um, City, and we wanted to invite people from different places in Latin America, the United States, um, and Canada, so that you know, we could actually have a transnational discussion uh, about that. And the other part was also to acknowledge recent uh, um, uh, uh, interpretations coming from Latin America that, could, that needs to be, you know, read and discuss in, let's say, the global north. Because that's, you know, sometimes, you know, those dialogues do happen, but they don't actually, you know, uh, relate to each other. That what I mean is, and what I mean is like, you know, uh, we have a tendency, you know, in the north to ignore what is happening in the south in terms of knowledge production. So that was indeed, you know, an effort to combine, you know, those, nobody saying then, it's only about, you know, Latin America, the production of knowledge coming from Latin America, but I'm making a, you know, a transnational, you know, dialogue. After the conference, we did, you know, reach out to some scholars to complement this effort that, you know, we partially, you know, did during the conference, but we were not completely satisfied. So we then, you know, reach out to a couple of uh, um, uh, scholars to make this transnational dialogue a, um, a reality. So um, you've talked a little bit about this already, but this is a book that really resists creating a singular definition of the middle class or of the middle classes. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about why a singular definition is unhelpful, maybe by telling us why a definition that works in one context wouldn't work at all in another context, drawing from the book's cases. Yeah, this is this is a key part, and I think this is one of the things we really want to, you know, um, achieve with you know the book. So the book does speak of dialogues because you know we we, we try to be more uh, create a dialogue rather than you know we making something entirely new. Precisely because of the reason that I just said, it's just more of a transnational dialogue. But the book does you know a, uh, take a different route because. For the middle class studies, and there are some, you know, reasons as to why this happens, mm, we have the tendency to see, you know, the middle classes as problematic because we assume they do not have a very specific 
sociological location in society. So we work on the assumption that the middle classes, as some of the, you know, the uh, scholars said, that is a gray zone of, you know, the social structure. We don't know what we're talking about. It's really, you know, fuzzy, the meanings, the practices. And, and, and if you think for a moment, the logic of that argument is, okay, we all agree that there are, you know, then, you know, three classes. And if the middle classes are so fuzzy in terms of what, where they belong, almost by definition, one could actually say, well, that also happens to the elites and, you know, the working classes. Because if, they, you know, the middle class are so fuzzy, then where you would be able to locate them. So instead of just trying to come up with a transhistorical definition of, you know, the middle classes, that then we could apply to different historical moments and say, well, you know, yes, that, you know, this is a middle class, this is not a middle class. What we can actually, you know, do is bring the question of what it meant to be middle class to different historical moments. This is not a claim to, let's say, you know, a, a, a liberal definition of, you know, agency. There are, you know, different elements that we emphasize, you know, as a, as a product of how different authors see the formation of the middle classes. So we talk about structural conditions. We talk about, you know, discursive, you know, a, uh, development, let's say. And we also talk about, you know, agency, right? So we combine these three. What we, the argument we make is that we don't make, we don't see any of these aspects as more important than, you know, the others. So we integrate, you know, these. So historically speaking, this, you know, this, uh, uh, the framework allows them to historicize the formation of, you know, the middle classes. So if, for example, just to give a couple of examples here, during the first half of the 20th century, we see the expansion of the service sector. We also see, you know, the process of industrialization throughout Latin America. Then we see simultaneously the emergence of, you know, racialized discourses. One of them, a very important one, the notion of, you know, mestizaje. So in some cases, the notion of mestizaje and some of the authors here, like Mara Viveros shows, is how this notion of Russian, racial harmony, the association of mestizaje with, you know, racial harmony, combine a, a definition of social harmony simultaneously connected to a definition of middle class. So that is a structural condition in that sense, that is to say industrialization, the growth of the service sector. There are some discourses here, the ones that I just mentioned, and then the multiplicity or the multiple ways in which you know, different historical actors mobilize some of these discourses in order to consider themselves part of you know, the middle class. So here what we're going to see is the consolidation of a dominant definition of middle class connected to the notion of, you know, mestizaje. Or other case, the case of Brazil, for example, where, you know, Barbara Weinstein shows how that in the case of Brazil, there was another, you know, discourse, the notion of, you know, the regionalization of race, the case of, you know, Sao Paulo, and how the notion of middle class was indeed associated with whiteness. It's not that they, you know, mestizaje and, you know, the notion of whiteness were in you know, contradiction with each other. There are multiple uh, uh, racialized discourses, but a similar process happens with the notion of middle class. There were multiple ways of how those discourses are mediating the structural conditions, the expansion of the service sector, the expansion of a, um, the process of industrialization. And then I could actually you know, give other examples about you know, well, how things you know, 
drastically changed the moment of the radicalization of the second half of the 20th century, particularly in the 1960s, and how the notion of middle class, you know, begin to get uh, uh, more of a, let's say, more radical meanings of what it meant, you know, to be part of the middle classes. But with this framework that combined this with a simply structure, agency, discourses, together without making a claim that one thing is more important than the other, but they actually, you know, we have to work it together, then we are able to historicize what it means to be a uh, middle class and the changes of what it means to be, you know, a, a, a middle class. I would love to hear some more about um, something that you that comes up in the book of class boundaries and how those boundaries get tested or enforced or how they actually shift over time. Um, could you give us some examples of maybe what we could call the borderlands of class, either between middle and popular classes or middle classes and the elites? Right. So this is, you know, it's, and, and, it, that part is, you know, an important, you know, point, Rachel, because a... Um, you know, our effort, you know, here is with, you know, the, the, the proposal, and this is indeed a collective effort, and I want to emphasize that part because, you know, when, when you do a collective effort with multiple authors, you know, that allows you to make certain arguments that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. I just want to make, you know, the claim that collective work is indeed important. And one of the, you know, effort is that we propose the notion of middle class, the concept of you know, middle class as a meaningful category to understand power, domination, and you know, the hierarchization of societies in Latin America. That is, I would call, this a, 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 a universal you know, question that is not only limited to the question of Latin America, but it goes you know, beyond. So then what we, you know, what we say is like, okay, so if that is indeed the case, what the, the study of the middle class allow us to see how some you know, class boundaries get followed with your language that I really like like that, like you know, how it get you know tested, right? How you know different historical actors respond um, to that. Well and, and in this case that you know I, I I will use my own you know research that is also you know future in you know one of the chapters here to talk about that particular, you know boundaries between popular groups, middle classes, and also a, um, a, um, elites. So, you know, the case I offer here is, is, you know, the radicalization of some, you know, professionals in the 1960s and 1970s as part of, you know, Cold War, you know, a, um, uh, politics. And as part of that radicalization, some middle class professionals, women and men, are going to make the claim to represent popular groups. But in that particular context, what we now see is, you know, who is the proper revolutionary subject. In that particular discussion, what they, you know, see is who the proletarian, the proper proletarian, would actually, you know, be in relation to some elites or imagine elites or imagine oligarchies. So in this particular case, the oligarchies with the, and the elements of gender would be, you know, crucial. The oligarchies, according to the discourse being, you know, put forward by this, you know, radicalized, you know, professional, part of a petit bourgeoisie following the language of, you know, the moment, would be, you know, feminine force against, you know, the democratization of, you know, society. So they are creating a boundary of, you know, 
belonging to the oligarchies would actually, you know, mean the feminization of certain class belonging. Simultaneously, these petit uh, bourgeois men and women are going to see the, uh, the, the, the proper proletarian as the source of masculinization. So I'm offering these examples, and I cannot go you know, too much, you know, into more detail, but I'm offering these examples just to see how certain boundaries are imagined through questions of, you know, gender. Other example are actually imagined, you know, question of, you know, race in order to imagine a hierarchization of, you know, societies. But to go back to my you know, earlier point, it's not just here, you know, claim to whatever, you know, people say um, about the middle class, then it becomes the reality of middle class. No, because what we actually see here, some, you know, two structural, you know, conditions at work. On the one hand, it's the, you know, the, the developmental programs that create material opportunities for some of these, you know, professionals to represent the developmental state. There were some, you know, discourses related to, you know, development that locate, you know, democracy um, as representation of, you know, middle class and simultaneously other, you know, structural conditions, which was in radicalization, the political radicalization of, you know, the, 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 uh, of society, of the, you know, hope of, you know, create a, a revolution. So that's going to actually put some limits, create some discourses through which, all of these historical actors are gonna, you know, try to create all of these hierarchized, you know, societies through ideas of race, through ideas of, you know, gender. So they create all of these, you know, uh, boundaries in which they try to locate, you know, themselves. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you mentioned um, that in the many contributions in this book, uh, that some of the authors come from disciplines other than than history. Um, and I would love to hear more about what you and the, the all the contributors really learned from each other's different approaches and different methodologies, different sources um, in studying these different cases um, and different understandings of the middle class? Um, Given our, you know, interest to understand, you know, the middle classes as a concept or as a discourse, as a structural condition, as a, you know, product of, you know, subjectivity, as a genealogy, the interdisciplinarity really help us, you know, flesh out all of these aspects. So, you know, a, um, as historians, of course, we, you know, what we call, you know, historical context is always, you know, there, right? So we, you know, we push, you know, really hard to see, okay, what's the specificity for that, you know, historical context? And in some cases, well, you know, let's talk about the structural, 
you know, conditions. And then I would say, you know, and, and, and this was, again, you know, we integrate all of these aspects. But then the other aspect is, you know, ethnographic work. That is, that, that several contributions who do very specific, you know, let's say, problematization of, you know, ethnographic work. Um, that is, okay, so let's think about how you have a conversation about how people remember the, quote-unquote, middle-class past. Right, that you know, that is the, uh, some cases in which we actually, you know, see how people remember are defined by questions of, you know, class, so structural conditions that, you know, endographic, endographic work, or you know, a uh, history that also, you know, sociological, you know, um, studies there that actually break up, you know, the the question how we measure then a, um, uh, uh, the yeah, how you measure. Who belongs to you know the middle you know, the middle classes, um, as well. So the interdisciplinarity allow us to make this you know integrated argument about how middle classes get how do we get materialized again the structural conditions, agency, discourses, um, subjectivities, genealogies, and what I mean by you know genealogies is that all of these you know how the, all of these ideas about middle class, let's say from the early, you know, 20th century or even, you know, earlier, they don't necessarily, you know, dis disappear. They get, you know, reconfigured, mobilized in later periods for different, you know, purposes. So let's say the modernization theory of the 1950s would indeed, you know, mobilize what happened earlier in terms of the role assigned to the middle classes in the service sector or the association between office work, um, you know, the formation of a middle class to make them the claim in the 1950s and 1960s of the, you know, the middle class as the representation of, you know, democracy. But the interdisciplinarity allow us to make that, you know, uh, uh, integral um, argument so that we keep in mind, you know, the historical process, but we also emphasize, you know, the ethnographic part to see how people, you know, thought of themselves as part of, you know, um, of a class. Even if in, in most cases you would actually, you know, see the contestation of that, you know, boundaries. The case, for example, of Mario Barbosa and, he, and his piece on, you know, early Mexico is a very interesting one because what is at stake is precisely how those um, boundaries get, you know, um, uh, tested. So that it, it is an ethnographic work of how different documents in the bureaucracy of the Mexican state is indeed defining who belongs to, you know, the middle class. But simultaneously, that is the effort of how that, you know, process in reality creates some burdens because some people needed to actually keep up with some of the definitions of what middle class, you know, was. So we actually see all of these two processes. But again, it's just because we offer an interdisciplinary approach to the formation of the middle classes in the 19th and 20th century. Could you speak to the way that the class background and class position actually of academics themselves shapes scholarship on the middle classes and, and maybe say something too about how this could work differently in the different countries where people are, are writing about the middle classes in Latin America? Oh, Reggie, that is indeed a very important question. One that I'm, you know, I'm dealing with at, at, you know, now for a, a different piece, but I, you know, Okay, I would say, you know, maybe two or three things. The first one is, 
uh, one of the things is important for us to see is uh, why do we think, we mean it, you know, scholars, what do we think we haven't studied the middle classes, which I don't think that's necessarily, you know, the case. We have, you know, uh, we have a lot of thick books proving the, uh, the, uh, the uh, not existent, in existence of, you know, the middle classes. So scholars from the academia have made a political effort, particularly in the case of, you know, Latin America. And all of these arguments are usually in comparative perspective. So what scholars have done is to write thick books in order to demonstrate the non-existence of the middle classes. So the middle classes has become, through all of these studies, a non-topic. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it hasn't been studied. It has been studied in order to prove its inexistent in the case of Latin America. Because in that effort, two things happen. On the one hand, is that then, you know, Latin America becomes, if, if, if we actually see that there is a middle class, then we have to come to terms with the idea that, well, one of the most important ideas that, you know, once you create a middle class society, you have, quote unquote, of a more democratic society than divided by, you know, two, two classes. So we have to come to terms with, are we going to then say that, you know, now or historically, you know, uh, uh, Latin America has been, you know, democratic? Of course, you know, that becomes, you know, a, um, you know, the question. Um, and the other then, you know, is the question of the position, position, positionality of scholars themselves by denying, by saying that it does not exist, is a way I would argue. And of course, I don't make that you know argument in the introduction to the book, but it's something that I'm you know writing right now. Is that by denying the existence of you know the middle classes, right, is a way to you know protect class privilege from those who are writing about, you know, the topic. And of course, we, you know, we, we would actually have to see how that indeed, you know, a, you know, happened because of course, you know, the, the, what is, is that in any other, you know, better way to protect one's privilege by saying we don't have to talk about it? So, and of course, I'm making an assumption here that most scholars are, you know, of a middle class background. And we could actually make, you know, that case. We could actually, you know, historically speaking, there's research to show that that is indeed the case. So that would actually, you know, produce uh, those two that, you know, the, 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 the positionality and the, and the class background shape how, you know, the middle classes have been historicized. And the third aspect would actually be that, that you know, profound Eurocentric views of what the middle class is all about. That is one of the main reasons why we think that the middle class, historically speaking, hasn't existed as a historical reality, as a class even, as empirical reality in Latin America. It's the implicit point of comparison. And the middle class in Latin America always found wanting with that particular you know, definition. So what we do is not just to say, okay, let me show you that the middle classes did indeed exist. Right? Because what we actually say then this is, as some decolonial thinker would actually argue, well, yeah, there are some parts of, middle, of Latin American society that get closer to 
you know, what they call a colonial matrix of power, which is associated with Europe. But, if, you know, the, what, what we actually, you know, try to do here is, well, if we actually frame the question of, you know, the formation of middle class as a question of domination, that is to say, to understand the multiple forms of, you know, uh, uh, domination, then it becomes a universal question. And not just that because it's just Latin America. Of course, there's some specificities to the Latin American case, historical specificities, but it becomes a larger theoretical question to understand how domination or multiple forms of domination and hierarchization of society actually work. So your, uh, this volume really makes clear that there, that maybe despite efforts to make this a non-topic, that there is clearly a robust and vibrant scholarship um, that's already underway on the middle classes in Latin American history or histories. But I would love to know what are some topics um, or questions in this subfield that you think have not gotten the attention yet that they deserve? I would say, you know, okay, so there are, you know, different, you know, um, well, maybe two or three aspects. The first one, we do, you know, make an effort, and they're really good examples to the question of, you know, the racialization of, you know, class and, let's say, the classification of, you know, race. It is indeed, you know, important to, you know, continue working on that, you know, aspect. Again, to engage what I would consider is now a hegemonic way of understanding Latin America, which is from, you know, the colonial theories, because as I argue in the introduction, and there are several chapters that actually show this uh, in the volume, what is fascinating that despite, or precisely because the colonial you know, theories have made you know, the case to locate Latin America as a very important part of the world to understand you know, power, they have simultaneously reproduced one of the most powerful ideas of, you know, a um, the Western canon, that is to say that the middle classes are a reality only for certain societies. And in this case, well, you know, Europe and, you know, the United States. It is a way to create what I would call an imperial difference. So, you know, decolonial theories do reproduce that part. And um, so what, one of the things in order to challenge that is to see the racialization of class and the classification of, you know, race. Uh, uh, in order to show the, the, let's say, the contradictions of how this colonial matrix of power materializes. So that would actually, you know, be, you know, one aspect. The second aspect is indeed, you know, the question of um, gender to rethink certain aspects. For example, you know, the Cold War. Uh, uh, usually, you know, we understand the Cold War through the, you know, the, yeah, through the dichotomy between revolutions and counter-revolution. The, 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 the example of uh, uh, Claudia Strumpy's here, and if I may, I include my work there as well. Once we include the questions of gender, the questions of masculinity, that particular distinction that we think, you know, define, you know, Cold War, revolution versus counter-revolution, start being a little bit more, you know, shaky in terms of what it meant to be part of the revolution or what it meant to be part of a counter-revolution. Notions of, you know, masculinity, claims to the right to rule from revolutionary men and men from the conservative, you know, side. So I think we actually have to get more into that particular, you know, field 
in order to question what I would, you know, regard as a very, you know, dominant, de you know, definition of what the Cold War was. Revolution versus a um, uh, uh, counter-revolution. And I would say, you know, the third aspect that, you know, we have to work more on would actually be, it, it relates to a, a question that you asked earlier, Rachel, is the relationship between middle classes and elites. We have, you know, thus far, spent a lot of time to see how this, you know, boundary making has historically happened in relation to, you know, popular groups. But we have to do it with, you know, a, um, with elites. And that would actually, you know, bring even more complications to, you know, uh, the picture because it would force us, you know, to think, um, to historicize questions of democracy and more specifically to the question of who has the right to rule. We assume that el the elites make that claim because they are elites, right? Um, and at the same time, well, you know, you think, well, you know, the, the middle classes are also the representation of, you know, democracy. So I would say that this is, you know, a part that we, well, we definitely have to, you know, to do more. And if you allow me, but perhaps historically speaking, we need more, you know, studies on 19th century. There are some, we, you know, feature some of the 19th century um, studies, but we also have to, you know, continue working on that because we assume that the reality of a middle class came from, you know, Europe to, you know, the Americas. So, I imagine studies showing how, not to say that they, you know, Latin America was the you know, original story of um, you know, middle class. That's not the point, but just to see the transnational connections and those transnational connections, you know, would actually be you know, interesting to see uh, for the 19th century because that is, a, you know, let's say a 20th century bias about you know, the study of the middle classes that, okay, yes, the middle, you know, 20th century is, of course, almost quite obvious that it emerged you know, the, a, a, a materiality of middle class emerging in the 20th century. But it will be, you know, interesting to push the, um, the argument a little bit and, you know, see the transnational, you know, creation um, of this uh, uh, definition of middle class. Again, the connection between Europe, the Americas, that is to say Latin America and the United, and the United States. There are, of course, you know, some, you know, good examples um, um, here, you know, Susie uh, Porter, does make that, you know, particular case of how, you know, Mexico appropriate certain idea of, you know, Europe and redefine what it meant to be, you know, a middle class. But I think, you know, more work on that front would be, you know, uh, important. So I'm wondering a little bit about how you bring some of this richness of, of your own work, but also all this other work that you've engaged with so deeply into your teaching. Um, when you're teaching maybe surveys or specialized courses about Latin America or about other sort of framings of history, um, how do you bring middle-class histories into the limelight? Okay. And, well, <laughs> there's uh, several ways, you know, one, I actually, I have, uh, I teach a class on the world histories of, you know, uh, the middle classes. And, and so I do 19 uh, to 20th century. But given, you know, the effort that we do in this, in this volume, it's a collective effort to integrate a, uh, um, uh, the formation of the middle class as a topic to other, you know, historical problematizations. The way I do it is, okay, what is a historical problematization? Let's say, you know, modernization as a reality. Let's say, you know, early, you know, a, um, um, a 20th century. So sometimes what I do is 
you know, bring up some um, documents, um, either, you know, as uh, uh, memories of, you know, interviews, oral histories, all documents produced at that particular moment to see the multiple ways of how modernization was experienced, how, you know, that experience was indeed, you know, uh, materialized through questions of class, gender, race, age, generation. So that's the way I do it. I, you know, bring, you know, some examples. So in the case of, you know, Colombia, that I, that's the, the, uh, the one that I know best, but sometimes I make some, you know, comparison with, you know, Chile or Argentina or um, other places. So I, I bring some um, uh, uh, documents in which they can actually, you know, see the major distinction that was created between those who work in factories and those who work in offices. Uh, you know, the redefinition of labor in process of modernization, urbanization, and then, you know, how certain ideas been, you know, about, you know, middle classness is being formed and how at the core of that notion of middle classness, the creation of a working class identity is also being a, um, uh, uh, materialized so that a student then, you know, see how class is being a, uh, um, uh, made. The other example I, uh, I, I do is, you know, populism, which is central to a, um, a, um, the histories of Latin America. And I do it in order to see, to show students how a very notion of politics, because of course, you know, and I would say, you know, here in the United States, the very notion of populism has a negative connotation. That's the way how most students approach the question of populism. So they see what, you know, what's wrong with, you know, uh, Latin America. It's the way to, you know, exoticize Latin America, right? The United States was supposedly all about, you know, democracy. And, you know, let me, let me, uh, and they, they actually, you know, see the case of, you know, Latin America as the representation of anti, you know, uh, democracy, i.e. populist, you know, politics. So sometimes what I do is to show students how that notion of, you know, middle classness shaped the way how they see Latin America. And then I, you know, see how, you know, uh, at the core of populist politics, but indeed, you know, a question of what it meant to, you know, live in a democratic society. So I do it, you know, through primary sources, interviews, examples with certain, you know, problematization. I have other examples for, you know, Cold War or more recently to, you know, to see how the very notion of, you know, middle class is so central to a neoliberal society and what we may call, you know, the depolitization of, you know, social relations, how the middle class becomes, you know, quote unquote, the proper, you know, definition of what, you know, people should actually do, the ideal of a, a society. So that's the way I integrate some of these um, discussions into my teaching. We've been speaking today with Ricardo Lopez Pedreros about the volume he co-edited with Mario Barbosa Cruz and Claudia Stern, The Middle Classes in Latin America, Subjectivities, Practices, and Genealogies. Ricardo, thanks so much for your time. No, thank you very much, you know, Rachel, for you know, this, this opportunity. And I certainly hope that you know, uh, there are a lot of people you know, readers for, you know, for this book. And I want, again, and I thank all the contributors to the book, and my co-editors, because I, I do think that, you know, a, a collective work make, make a difference.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.